Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. You can find your seats. We're going to be uh, diving in back into our series. We'll be in 2 Kings, the second chapter, so you can turn there, and uh, we'll be talking about the life of Elisha. We are in the midst of our series. Our series is called In the Lord's Sight, um, and really, as we've talked about before, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles talks over and over again about who we are in the Lord's sight, that God sees, He understands, and that He's watching. And He names the kings and says, this king did what was evil in the Lord's sight. This king did what was good in the Lord's sight. Which then begs the question, what is that? You know, what are we looking to become in the Lord's sight? Are we even thinking about who we're becoming and whose sight we're becoming? Because most of the time we're trying to impress someone, whether that's someone at work, boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, Whatever it is, most of the time we're trying to present ourselves visibly and in our personality and who we are in a certain way. Um, and the Lord says that why aren't we trying to do that most with him? Why are we so concerned about the people around us, maybe the nation we live in, all those things, instead of being most concerned about how he sees us and understanding fully how he sees who we are. That yet, while we're sinners, Christ died for us. God paid the price uh, so that we could know him. And so that's what this series has been about. Just as a quick reminder for those of you who haven't been here, right now the kingdom, um, the Old Testament kingdom is split into two. So God has led his people into the promised land in the book of Exodus. He leads them out in the book of Joshua. They go into the promised land. They want a king. God says, I want to be your king. They're like, no, we want a king like everybody else. God warns them, if you do that, it's going to be a disaster. And he does the same for us. God warns us. We say, well, we want this. And God's like, okay, you can have it. See how that goes, right? And the Lord allows this. And there's been lots of debate throughout history of how much is it our choice and God's control, his sovereignty. Good luck figuring that out. You won't. They've been arguing about it before Jesus came. The religious leaders of the Old Testament argued. They've been arguing about it ever since. God leaves us in that tension, which isn't terrible because you live in the same tension every day anyway, right? I mean, if you don't believe in God, then how much of this is fate and how much is my choice? It doesn't, the question doesn't go away just because you dismiss God. It's still the same question throughout all of life. And so now we have a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The southern kingdom has a few kings throughout its history of over 400 years that are good, just a few. The northern kingdom doesn't have a single king that ever is what God says is righteous in the Lord's sight or does what is good in the Lord's sight. Not a one. Not a single king in hundreds of years. And they end up going away and led into, into a captivity. Ten of the tribes of Israel go north. There's 12 tribes. Two, Judah and Benjamin, go south. And there's a dividing line across. There's a border. Jeroboam split the kingdom. He makes a northern kingdom. And in that northern kingdom... He establishes two places of worship, Baal and Dan, and they start worshiping a golden calf instead of the God of Yahweh. God told Jeroboam when he split away, he said, please, I understand why you're leaving. I understand why you're splitting away. I understand why you're doing what you're doing because of the evil, wicked heart of Rehoboam. But please let my people still go and worship me in Jerusalem. Please don't keep them from obeying me. Don't keep them from doing what's right in my sight. And Jeroboam says, no way, not happening. Because every time they go south, then they start liking Rehoboam better than me, and so I'm not going to allow that to happen. And so now you have this turmoil. 
Last week we looked at the fact that in chapter, uh, in the first part of 2 Kings, that it talks about life and death. And Psalm 116.15 says, The death of his faithful ones is valuable in the Lord's sight. Lord, I am indeed your servant. I am your servant, the son of your female servant. You've loosened my bonds. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house within you, Jerusalem. Hallelujah. And it's just that idea that we have a life to live. We know that there's an end coming at some point for everyone. But the Lord says that if we know him, that we are precious in his sight, that he sees our life. He knows when he gave us life, he knows when our end is coming. And he says that he loves us and we should give him thanks and call on him. And then in Philippians, Paul says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that I, but now as always with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. You know, the, God says that if you know him, if you're a part of his covenant people, if you've surrendered your life to him, you can have confidence that you will spend eternity with him that you will have eternal life. You can have confidence in this life to know that there's a God who loves you, who sees you, who cares for you, who's walking with you, even through the difficult things. That he has a purpose. He wants to show others that there's hope in a life where oftentimes it seems so hopeless. Now, as we pick back up the story, we have Elijah who has gone on. He's disappeared. He was the prophet to the northern kingdom talking to them about their wickedness and their need to repent to him. He has now disappeared, and Elisha has now become the prophet who is supposed to give his life, serving and going around and making God known to the people. And we pick up the story of Elisha, and one of the things we're going to find this morning is that Elisha asks this question. What can I do for you? What can I do for you? So, we have life, we have death, we have the in-between, and we have a God who oftentimes wants us to come to him and present our requests before him. And we'll see in a moment that Elijah's like, what, what can I do? Is there something I can do for you? Now, this is used selfishly, and we'll look at that, that oftentimes when we go to God with what we want him to do for us, we don't ask him what his will is, we just tell him what we want our will to be. But God genuinely wants us to come before him. In 1 Kings 2, 19, we pick up the story where we left off. Elisha is now the new prophet. And it says, even though our Lord can see that the city's location is good, the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He replied, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. After they had brought him one, Elisha went out to the spring of water, threw salt in it and said, this is what the Lord says. I have hurt, I have healed this water. No longer will death or unfruitfulness result from it. Therefore, the water remains healthy to this very day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So, Elisha is with the prophets, and they're establishing a place for the prophets, like an educational school, most scholars believe. And they're coming to a land, and there's this land, and they're coming up to it, but the one problem they have, because it was an arid place, it's a desert, the one problem that they have is that they need water. <laughs> water is the source of life. And they're like, the problem with this place is it's a good land, but the water has a problem. And we don't know what to do about it. And through a miracle, God allows Elisha to 
put salt in it. Salt is always a representation in Scripture of a preservative. It preserves life, preserves meat, those kinds of things, gives taste to things. And Elijah, through a miracle of God, if you took a bowl of water and put some salt in it and threw it in dirty water, nothing's going to happen. Okay? It's just not. Probably not going to help you. It might, but I doubt it. But in this circumstance, God is allowing Elisha to show that he has the message for the people that they need to hear. The message of salvation is coming from him. And so he gives, we'll see these miracles, and the next several chapter is miracle after miracle that God performs for his people over and over again. Even though, listen, even though they live in a very, very wicked kingdom with a very wicked king, even though it's a mess and that they deserve everything that should have or could have happened to them in all of those things, God is still coming and meeting their needs. He's still meeting with them. He's still providing for them, even in the midst of the life and the death and the mess that's there. He's still saying, what can I do for you, my people? It goes on from there in verse 28. This is a passage of scripture I share often because it applies to my life. It says, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking up the path, some small boys came out of the city and harassed him, chanting, go up, baldy, go up, baldy. See, I told you it applied to my life. He turned around, he looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. From there, Elisha went to Mount Carmel, and then he returned to Samaria. Now, we look at this story and we think, oh my goodness, that's so horrible. Well, most scholars believe that where he was traveling and what was going up on with the whole go up baldy was likely that these young men, these were probably not just little bitty children, they were kind of like teenagers. And they were probably being trained in foreign gods, Baal and Asherah school. So they came out of this city where there were these foreign gods. They know Elisha is a righteous prophet that he is a prophet of God, and they're purposefully coming out to attack him, to, to, to make fun of him, to, to defame the name of God that rests on Elijah's life. And then Elijah just turns around and says, okay, if you're going to do that, then here it is. And then two female bears come out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. It's like, man. In other words... The Lord's providing water for his people, but on the other hand, he's defending his people. He's defending the truth about who he is. He's de- even though sometimes it may not seem like it, right, that you're being ridiculed, it doesn't mean we're going to avoid the ridicule. It's we're going to avoid being made fun of. We're going to avoid those things. It doesn't, that's, that doesn't happen, but that the Lord will back us up in his time. I mean, there are other times I'm sure Elisha didn't have this happen, and he was made fun of, and wasn't able to defend himself. And, and again, I love that the Bible shares all these stories that seem so random, but they're not. They're life stories. They're, they're stories that you will have in life, that these random stories that show up that you'll share when God provided for you, when you saw something happen, when this happened in your life, that the, they seem random, but they're not because they're showing who God is in our life. So those two things happen, both miracles, Right? Two miracles, one God providing, one God defending. Then we see another one in 2 Kings 4. It says, one of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha. 
Your servant, my husband, has died. You know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take my two children as his slaves. This was actually legal to do. In the Old Testament, it was said that if you were going to go in debt, if you were going to do that, then your children were going to have to pay it off if you didn't. So be very careful going into debt because your children are going to have to pay for it. Something maybe $30 trillion in debt we should have thought of. <laughs> and, and so he lays this out. Again, it's not evil to be in debt. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong to be in debt. The Bible doesn't, never says to treat people badly or slaves badly. The, the Bible says, Paul even says in, in Philemon, in the book of Philemon, like treat Onesimus who's a slave exactly like you would treat me. Don't treat them like, oh, you're my slave, you owe me. Just recognize a debt has to be paid and pay the debt. Well, treat them badly for it. It's just the circumstance they found themselves in, right? And so here you have this circumstance where this wife, her husband has been a faithful prophet in a wicked nation. He, he has faithfully served God, and it's not turning out well for her. He dies, he was probably in debt because he was a faithful person and faithful people didn't get the opportunities that unfaithful people got. If you didn't worship Baal and Asherah, you weren't given the opportunities that you were by, give, by serving Yahweh. And you have to remember as well that when children would go into slavery, they, everybody had to set, be set free on the year of Jubilee. So it wasn't a slavery forever. It was a slavery until the debt was paid by the person or until the nation was required to celebrate the year of Jubilee and forgive all debts and returned all land to their rightful owners. You know how many times the children of God celebrated a year of Jubilee to return everything to God and everything to their brothers and sisters? Never. It never happened once. They refused. They refused to ever give grace. When God commanded it and said, look, I know that there's debts that need to be paid. I, I, I know righteousness. I know justice. But you are to have a year of grace every time so that you know that it's not forever. You're not stuck in this. And you're to treat your brothers and sisters with that kind of compassion and love. And everybody knows when that date's coming. Everybody's held accountable to that date. It's right there. And the children of Israel never celebrated. And so this wife, this mom is panicked. She's like, then how am I going to live? Because I'm a faithful widow in a nation that doesn't respect the fact that my husband's been faithful or I've been faithful. How are we going to live? Elisha asked her, I love this. He looks at her and says, what can I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. She said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. I don't have any bread, I don't have any fruit, I got, no, I got nothing. All I have is some oil. It would have been olive oil. That's all I got. And he says, well, what can, what can I do for you? Tell me what you have. So see, it's interesting because Elisha says, what can I do for you? And then the next question he asks is, with what you have. See, we always want to come to God and say, you need to do this for me but not be a part of the process with what he's given us. Whatever that is, and it may only be you got a little bit of oil. That's all you've got to offer is a little bit of time or a little bit of this. And God has a way of making that enough. He's like, honor me with what you have and see if I can't make it worth something. 
That's what the Lord does all the way through Scripture. But isn't it awesome that God sends His prophets, He sends the Word, He sends the Holy Spirit to us so that we can tell Him, what can I do for you? I mean, and kind of the question's weird too, because it's like, what do you mean, what can you do for me? Like, get rid of the debt. <laughs> I'm, I'm in trouble here. I'm going to lose my sons. Like, you could raise my son, husband from the dead. I don't know. I, there's a lot you can do for me. And he's like, well, what are your expectations? What do you want? And then he says, go and borrow empty containers from everyone, from all your neighbors. Don't just get a few. So go take on more debt by borrowing from my neighbors? That's what got me into this mess. My husband wasn't very good. He borrowed a bunch of money, and now I'm stuck. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't go out and borrow money, but sometimes we can judge people harshly, not righteously, in talking to them about, well, you keep just charging, you know, a new outfit on a credit card every couple of months. Like, stop. But there are circumstances that we're put in where we don't have a choice. We're stuck. We're not willing to, and sometimes we put ourselves in that circumstance because we're not willing to wait on God. We're not willing to do that. But in this circumstance, she's stuck. And then Elisha looks at her and goes, go borrow some jars from neighbors. Can you imagine that? Like my neighbors know that I'm in debt and now I'm going to, and they know that I can't pay it off. Are they even going to let me have jars? Are they even going to lend me their jars when I'm already in over my head? Elisha's like, well, trust me by faith, and why don't you ask? And tell them that I told you to ask. So she goes out. Then he said, do not just get a few jars. <laughs> in other words, you're going to have to ask a lot of people <laughs> for help. See, we always want God to fix our problems without asking for help. On our own, us and Jesus. Without seeking him or seeking others, we're putting ourselves out there. She's, he's like, you're going to have to go out and do the work. And then it says, then go in and shut the door behind you and your, you and your sons pour oil into all these containers, set the full ones to one side. So I've got a jar of oil, I've got a little bit of oil, and I'm supposed to get a bunch of jars and then just keep pouring it. I mean, this, is, this isn't like happened regularly. This isn't something you would do because, well, I've seen this happen a bunch. This is how everybody pays off their debts. Everybody just gets a little oil, and then they borrow jars, and then it all works out. Like, this is not something, that, this is a miracle. This is something where God is asking this woman to do something that doesn't make any sense, and she's trusting him, and other people are trusting her. Because they're giving her the jars. And her sons are trusting her because they're actually doing what mom's saying, not saying, well, mom's crazy and we never listen to mom. No, we have a faithful mother we want to serve. We had a faithful father we want to respect. Like, this is the person we're talking about here as you look at this passage. And oil in the Bible always represents the Holy Spirit. It's an overflow of the presence and work of God. And so here you have this circumstance. And it says, so she left. After she had shut the door behind her and her sons, they kept bringing her containers. So the mom is pouring and the sons are running out. Now they're having to go ask on behalf of their dad and mom. So these sons are faithful to their mother and father. They're honoring the fifth commandment of God 
in the Old Testament. Honor your mother and father so that it will go well with you. They're doing that. And then it says, look, when they were full, she said to her son, bring another container. But he replied, there aren't any more. Then the oil stopped. She went and told the man of God, that's Elisha, and said to him, um, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons can live on the rest. There was so much oil that God provided miraculously that she was able to go sell it and then pay off all the debts, which doesn't just mean the first debts, but pay everybody for the jars that she had to sell the oil in. (laughs) And so now you have this woman who is paying off all of her, her debts. God asked her, what can I do for you? And then he said, she didn't even give a response. And he said, well, this is what I want you to do. And see, that's what can happen so often is that we can come to the Lord and, he, and we can come and he wants us to bring his, our requests. And he says, what can I do for you? And it's like, well, there's all these other commands that he's already asked us to do. Do those and see if he doesn't take care of the rest. And that's what the Lord does for us. He's like, take care of these things. Do these simple things in your life and, and see if I don't show up in the rest of your life. See if I don't provide for you beyond what you could think or imagine. Now, that doesn't mean always financially. It could be a provision of peace, of love, of joy, of kindness, of faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the oil of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says, against these things, there is no law. In other words, you can pour as much of that stuff as you want or allow God to bring in your life is what he says. So Elijah goes down. Pick up verse 8 in chapter 4. It says, Then one day Elijah went to Shunem. A prominent woman who lived there persuaded him to eat some food. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. Then she said to her husband, I know that the one who often passes by here is a holy man. So let's make a small room upstairs and put a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp there for him. Whenever he comes, he can stay there. So now we have this incredible contrast. You have a contrast of an incredibly poor widow. Poor as poor can be. And Elisha serving that poor widow. And now you have an incredibly wealthy woman and family. And God is still serving them as well. Doesn't seem fair. I want to be the wealthy person. Let's look at the story. Because see, sometimes we look at wealthy people or we look at people that have certain things that we want and we think, well, well, they've done it right, or God's holding out on me. But all of us have issues, just like this widow had an issue that she had two really great sons, faithful sons that loved her and would do anything for their mother. We find out in just a moment this woman doesn't have any children, which was a big deal in these days because the inheritance was passed down to the male. It wasn't a small thing. It goes on and it says, one day he came there and stopped and went to the room upstairs to lie down. He ordered his attendant, Gehazi, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her and she stood before him. Then he said to Gehazi, say to her, look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. What can we do for you? What can we do for you? 
Like, again, this woman is serving. She's faithful. She's using her gifts and abilities to serve the Lord and serve the Lord's people and to serve this prophet that's going out to tell the truth to God's people about who he is. And she's giving all she has. She's asked her husband to leverage and give the permission to do this. And Elisha is so amazed by her kindness and her goodness and her faithfulness that Elisha himself says, man, this is amazing. We don't have this response. Normally when I walk by cities, little boys come out or or young men come out and curse me and call me baldy. You've created a room for me. Right? So you've got the one circumstance where people are criticizing Elisha. They're ripping him down. They're making fun of him. And another circumstance where this woman is just led by God to say, here you go. Here's a room. Here's provision. Here's food. Everything I have is yours so that you can do the work of going out and preaching the message God has for you. What an amazing picture of a faithful person. What an amazing picture picture both ways. So then it goes on and says, can we speak Look at what he says. What can we do for you? And then Elisha makes a a suggestion. He says, can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She answered, I'm living among my own people. It seems like a weird response. It's not. They are saying, literally, you have done so much for us. We want to go to the king. We want to go to the armies so that you can have full protection in your life, that your home will be protected and respected, that you will be known, that you will go without want. I mean, they are like, I can go and talk to, I have direct access to the king to know about you and your husband and the business dealings you do. Like, I, I can really influence things for you. And her response is, nah, I'm just happy being among my people. I don't need anything. I'm good. I'm content. I have a husband. I have a home. I'm good. I, I get to dwell here. I mean, this is the northern kingdom of Israel. This is a mess. I mean, there's so much problems and wickedness. And she's like, yeah, you could fix this problem and that problem and this problem. And she's just like, man, I'm just happy to be alive. I'm happy to, to, to be who I am. I'm happy to serve you. I'm, I just, this is great. So then he asked, then what should be done for you? Like, We want to do something for you. Do do you believe that God wants to do something for you? I have that. I struggle with that sometimes. Right? I struggle that God wants to like do things for me as his son, as his child, as, as his servant. And, and I struggle with, well, am I supposed to be content or ask for things? You ever struggle with that? Like, should I just be content or should I ask? What what should I do here? That's not a new struggle. Here it is. It's been around for thousands of years. And he says, what should be done for her? Gehazi answered. I love that Elisha's servant's like, I don't know. What should we do for this woman? Have you ever done that? You're trying to think about what you should do for somebody, buy them a gift, help them out, whatever else. And you're like, I don't know what to do. Here's what he, look, it says. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband's old. <laughs> I love how the Bible's so honest. Like, he's an old dude. He's not gonna, like, she married an old guy, and it's probably, just, mm, that's not gonna happen, right? And she doesn't have a son, and that's kind of a curse, and she probably needs a son, right? And then it says, 
Call her, Elisha said. So Gehazi called her and she stood in the doorway. Elisha said, at this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. I don't know if she wanted a son. She didn't say she wanted a son, right? Like, wait a minute. I've been doing life really well as a single woman, taking care of my old man. Like, this is, I got this figured out and you're just gonna give me a kid out of nowhere, right? Wait, I don't know if I'm, no, he's like, no, we're gonna bless you with this. And then it says, then she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not deceive your servant. Now, here's how we know her heart. This woman had been praying for a very long time for a son. Because when Elisha said, God's going to actually give you what you've longed for. It's been a long time. It's been decades. It's been years. You think you're too old. You think your husband's too old. You think... He's going to do it. He's actually going to do it. And she is like, don't deceive me. Don't tell me something that isn't going to happen. Don't, I, I've finally come to terms with I have to live this life. I have to do what I'm doing. I have to suffer. I have to do this. Do not mess with that unless it's real. Don't play games with me, she says. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son at the same time the following year. At Elisha, as Elisha had promised her. The child grew and one day went out with his father to the harvesters. Suddenly he complained to his father, my head, my head. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. So he picked him up and took him to the mother. The child sat on her lap until noon and then died. Then she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut him in and left. She summoned her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so I can hurry to the man of God and then come back. But he said, why go to him today? It's not a new moon or a Sabbath. She replied, oh, oh everything's fine. Everything's all right. This woman's son has just died and she hasn't told her husband yet. Like she is, she's in a psychological mess right now. This man of God gave me a son and then he just, um, and then God takes him from me. It would have been better not even to have one than, than to have and then ha not, not have. And she's trying to figure out how to deal with this loss. And she's like, well, maybe if I lay him on the man of God's bed and I need to go talk to them, like, why did he do this to me? And she looks at her husband and she says, you know, everything is all right. Now, some scholars believe she really, truly had faith that God was going to resurrect her son. We don't know. Maybe she, by faith, is just saying, I just believe, regardless of whether my son is dead or alive, everything will be all right. I just believe that. Maybe she's just lying. We don't know. It's a loaded statement. But she's like, everything's okay. But she's acting like it's not okay. She's running around pretty quickly. She's, I got to get to the man of God because things aren't okay. Goes on in Kings and says, then she saddled the donkey and said, to her servant, hurry, don't slow down, slow the pace for me unless I tell you. So she sat out and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to his attendant Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite woman. He's like, oh, look, it's our friend. She's come to visit, right? Run out to meet her and ask, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? Like he recognizes that if she's traveling, if she's going as a woman, traveling by herself and trying to find him, that something's up. 
You see, the Lord knows that too. The Lord says those who seek shall find. The Lord looks for those who are seeking. He sees them. He asks questions. Like, this is how a relationship works. And then it says, she answered, everything is all right. She tells Gehazi, oh, no, 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 everything's fine. When she came up to the man of God at the mountain, she clung to his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. He's like, wait a minute, you told me everything is all right, and now you're like grabbing onto his feet. Like the awkward scene of this woman grabbing Elisha's feet, and Gehazi was the guy that was supposed to protect Elisha from people like this. And then it says, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in severe anguish, and the Lord has hidden it from me. He hasn't told me. You see, you can be the prophet of God. You can be the most biblical, walk-with-Jesus person you can be, and there are times when God just does not let you in on what he's doing or what's going on. You just don't know. All you can see is the reality of all you can see, what's directly in your sight, but you don't know what's going on in the Lord's sight, and that's this circumstance. Elisha's like, I'm kind of shocked that I don't know because normally I know before everybody else knows. And in this moment, he's looking and he's saying, wait, something's up. And the Lord has not revealed to me for whatever reason what that is. Story goes on. It says, then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say, do not deceive me? Did I ask for this? You ever said that to God? Did I ask for this? Did I ask for this sickness? Did I ask for this thing? Did I ask? I didn't ask for this. And then you gave it to me, and now it's a mess. I wish you just would have never gave it to me. I wish you would have never done this. You're in good company. It's normal behavior when things like this happen in your life, where you go, I didn't even ask, and now i got to deal with something I didn't want to deal with. It would have been better, again, just never to have a child, not to have to feel this pain and this anguish. So Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your mantle under your belt. That's his kind of rope, tuck it under your belt. Take my staff with you and go. If you meet anyone, don't stop to greet him. And if a man greets you, don't answer him. Then place my staff on the boy's face. And the boy's mother said to Elijah, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. See, that's the proper response in our relationship with God. We can fix this. We can fix this. That's great. Maybe you can fix it, but I'm not leaving Jesus. I'm not leaving my prayer. I'm I'm focused on him. It's great. Maybe Gehazi's going to go take care of it, but I know you're the one, not him. I'm focused on what you've done, who you are. She's like, I'm not leaving. See, there's there's a desperation there. That that's how we come to salvation in Jesus, that we are so desperate that we're like, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere else for an answer. I'm staying here with you until there's an answer, until I know for sure that my son's either going to be dead and we bury him or you're going to bring him back. And I'm not leaving you. I'm clinging to you until I get the answer. And God always answers yes, no, or wait. Those are the three answers God gives in Scripture to us. Same as parents, yes, no, or wait. He goes on, look at this. And it says, 
So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went ahead of them and placed the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or sign of life. So he went back to meet Elijah and told him the boy didn't wake up. When Elisha got to the house, he discovered the boy lying dead on his bed. <laughs> on his be- like, oh, he's on my bed. <laughs> that wasn't told to me. I didn't know I had a dead person in my bed that I come to stay in, right? So he went in, closed the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. He goes in, closes the door. Gehazi and mom are outside, and he just starts praying. He doesn't start chanting. He doesn't put the staff on his head and beat him. Like he's not doing, he's just praying. Then he went up and lay on the boy. He put mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. When he bent down over him, the boy's flesh became warm. God is intimate with his people. And when God brings us life, there's an intimacy that comes with it. Then it says, Elisha got up, went into the house, and paced back and forth. Then he went up and bent down over him again. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha is even nervous about this. Elisha is pacing. Like he's even like, uh, you know. And then the boy sneezes seven times. I love that it just says that. Like, is that some magical number? We got to sneeze seven times. Some of you probably like sneeze three times. Some of you sneeze once. All of you have your own sneeze pattern, right? You do. And your family can tell you if you don't, right? Some of you like after a meal, I know someone, I can't remember who it is. They, they eat and when they're full, they sneeze three times. Like that's how their body lets them know they're full. That's so weird. I've never heard of anybody else having that. But it's like, yeah, that's what I do. It's like, oh, he's full. Like everybody knows. And then it says, Elisha called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. He called her and she came. Then Elisha said, pick up your son. She came, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. She picked up her son and left. I can't help but read this story and think of Mary, Jesus' mother. Who, she was at the foot of his cross. He was dying And she didn't know what was going to happen. She had no idea what was going to happen to her son. She couldn't stop it. And then Jesus, three days later, comes out of the grave back to life. Isn't it amazing how God just keeps showing himself faithful over the biggest issues that we have in our life over and over again in Scripture throughout all of eternity? He doesn't change. So this woman is overwhelmed by God saving her son. Now remember, her son's still going to die. She's still going to die. This, it's not a permanent resurrection. It's a temporary one. It's a temporary brought back to life. There's still going to be death. There's still going to be problems. There's still going to be sickness. There's still going to be issues. But for some reason, God intervened this time to prove to us who he is and to prove to everyone in the nation of Israel that he has power even over death. He has power over the waters. He has power over everything. Then he goes on. Well, one of the things you have to remember is that God doesn't always do that. If you remember King David, in 2 Samuel 12 is a story of King David when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba is pregnant, and God says, the child will not live. Like, I'm taking this child to be with me. He's not going to survive because of the sin. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of the house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. 
You don't think David knew the Bible? You don't think David knew, well, you saved their son. You saved the widow and her sons. But you're going to take my son? Look at this. When David heard this, he got up from the ground. He washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house, and worshipped. I don't know how you do that. When your prayer isn't answered the way you want it answered and you still get up, put on the robes, look the way you're supposed to look and you go to the house and you say, God, you are good. I don't have to have what I want. I'm, thank you for allowing me to ask Thank you for inviting me into the relationship. Thank you for not killing me for my adultery. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And then look at what it says. It says, he answered while the baby was alive, his, his uh, attendants asked him, how can you do this? How are you not still mourning? How are you not depressed? And he said, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may have grace. He may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Look at what he says. I'll go to him, but he'll never return to me. David says, I know my son is with the father. This is a great verse when people say, what happens to babies when they die? David was fully confident that my baby is with God, and when I die, I'm going to be with God, and I'm going to see him, but not on this side of eternity. I have a heavenly promise that will not disappear, and it is a beautiful, beautiful promise for us to understand. And what a response. In James, it says, what is the source of the wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires, not on God's desires. James just lays it out. He's like, God wants you to ask. God wants you to come before him. God wants to answer you. But most of the time, the reason we're asking is because there's an outcome that we're demanding. It doesn't mean we can't ask, but God says yes, no, and wait. And those are hard responses. And he says, oftentimes we don't receive because God knows if he gives this to us, we're just going to use it for evil, so I'm not going to give it to you. In Matthew, Jesus says this, don't give what, what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. You receive something. You either receive by going and getting it yourself because you're not going to wait, or you wait on God and you receive from him, either on this side of eternity or the next. And then he says, he goes on and says, keep searching, you'll find. Keep knocking, the door will be open." For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you 
want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. I love that Jesus spoke that at the end. Jesus is literally saying, you keep praying for all these things for other people. How much are you the answer for other people? You keep praying all these things for yourself. You keep praying, I want, how many times are you the answer for others? that I've provided in the world to be their answer. Elisha was the answer to the water. He was the answer for the, for the oil. He was the answer for this woman. He is the picture of Christ in the Old Testament, right? John the Baptist was the Elijah of the Old Testament, Jesus said, and Jesus was the Elisha that came after him with a double portion of spirit. It's a picture beautifully. And so here he says, he's like, God wants to give you good things and he wants to give it to you through the people of God. He wants us working together to say, no, yes, let's wait together, let's pray. Like that's the point, Jesus says. He wants us to ask, he wants us to keep knocking, he wants us to keep searching. Don't stop. But when you don't get it, don't think God is done with you. Pick yourself up and say, you know what? I've been begging God for this and I can't get it, but you know what? Maybe I can help someone else who can. Maybe I can give to someone else who doesn't have. It goes on and says, when Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. The son of the prophets were sitting at his feet and he said to his attendant, put on the large pot and make a stew for the sons of the prophet. One went out to the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine from which he gathered as many wild gourds as his garment would hold. So they're starving. He finds these wild gourds. He's coming back. Then he came back and cut them up into the pot of stew, but they were unaware of what they were. You're eating weird plants because you're so hungry. That's not a good thing. That's how people die. Look at what happens. Then they served some for the men to eat, but when they ate the stew, they cried out, there's death in the pot, man of God. Like, this is bad. This is the worst thing we've ever tasted. Like, this, this, this is not good. And they were unable to eat it. Then Elisha said, get some meal. That's some cornmeal or some uh, wheat meal that's been crushed. And he threw it into the pot and said, serve it for the people to eat. And there was nothing bad in the pot. Again, another miracle. That that, that which is dead has been made alive. Through what? Something that was alive and died. A grain. A grain that was alive was crushed to death and it provided life. Jesus said, if you bury something and it dies and it comes back... It produces a hundredfold. That's the message here with Elijah. It's that simple message. It goes on. It says, A man from Baal, Shalshajah, came to the man of God with a sack full of 20 loaves of barley bread from the first bread of the harvest. Elisha said, Give it to the people to eat. In other words, he's bringing it to the prophets. He's saying, Hey, you prophets need something to eat. And Elisha's like, No, let's take care of the people. And then it says, Look, but Elisha's attendant asks, What? Am I to send 20 loaves before 100 men? Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and they will have some left over. He's quoting. This is what the Lord says. So he gave it to them and the Lord, as the Lord had promised, they ate and had some left over. This story sounds really familiar. See, all of these miracles that you see happening in Elisha's life, there is a New Testament comparison with Jesus. Because see, the miracles aren't there for us to want the miracles. The miracles are there for us to want the person. 
Because we know if we have the person, like the Shunammite woman knew, if I've got Elisha, I have everything I could ever need because he's God's prophet. If I have Jesus, I have everything I could ever need. Look at what John says as we wrap up. John 6, 1 says, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee for Tiberias. Jesus is going out. He waited till he was 30. He literally waited, sought the Lord till he was 30 before he started his public ministry. 30 years of waiting before he started. He's now doing his public ministry and now he's doing some miracles like Elisha did to prove that he really is the prophet of God. He ends up stopping doing those miracles because now all they want is miracles. And he's like, that's not what this is about. And we see this in this story. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So there's all these James people that are coming with false motives. They don't really want to know Jesus. They don't want to surrender to Jesus. They just want all the goodies that he and his people provide for them. Goes on, it says, So he, Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. So he's just sitting. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. That's the highest Passover festival. That's the sacrificial lamb. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming towards him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? Like Jesus is looking out at the people. He's like, I want to feed these people. I want to take care of them. He asked this to test Philip. For he, knew himself, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even have a little bit. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Then Jesus said, have the people sit down. So in other words, sit down, calm down, pause, Right? Then the men numbered about 5,000. That means that there were other women and children there. That's, they just counted the men, and that was 5,000. This was a huge, huge crowd. And then it says, Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, remember, what did David do after his son died? He gave thanks. That is the secret to walking with God that I still haven't learned in my life, and I'm trying to learn, is to be someone who just knows how to give thanks in everything. And he gave thanks and he distributed to them to those who were seated also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. How many disciples were there? Twelve. You thought we didn't have enough. You thought it wasn't enough. You thought God wasn't going to come through. You didn't know how you are going to solve this problem. And now all of you are walking out with an extra basket full of food. Way more than you ever thought God could do. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? Look, I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to collect so much. Each of you is going to have a basket. It's like, and like each of them had, can you imagine? You're sitting there arguing you're not as bold as Andrew or Philip to talk. You're the quiet Thomas, right? Or the quiet Nathaniel, uh, Nathan, you know, Nathaniel to the background. You're not saying anything. But in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, this isn't going to go well. And now all of you have to stand there with your full basket and go, wow, I didn't see that coming. Right? That's what God wants to do in our church. It's what he wants to do in our lives. He, he wants to fill us up, and it's not about fish and loaves, because if you remember, the fish is the flesh, and the loaves is the bread, because Jesus goes on to say this, 
Later on in the passage, it says, when the people saw the signs he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who came into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew what they that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Every time they wanted to exalt him to be the man that could take care of all the problems, Jesus steps away and says, that is not how this is going to work. you got to have faith. I'm not, I'm not fixing all of this. And then it goes on, look. Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, look, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Why are you looking for Jesus? Why do you want God to look at you and to see you in his sight? What are you looking for? Jesus says, you're not here to really figure out if I am who I say I am. You're just here because you want to see a show and have your belly filled. And then he goes, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has sent his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. If you want to have it all, believe in the one that has it all. That's it. That's what it's about. They go on later, Jesus travels across the uh, Sea of Galilee and they chase him in boats. Like It's like a boat race. They're like going after him. They won't leave him alone, right? They all get to the other side and they say, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe in you? He just got done telling them, you need to believe him. They're like, oh, you need to do some more. Well, you got to prove yourself. And we can do that to God so often where we... Or like, yeah, I'll do what you want me to do, God. I'll, I'll help other people. I'll do these things. I'll create a room in my, in my house. I'll, I'll fill jars up, but you've got to come through first before I'm stepping out and look like an idiot. And then he says, look, what are you going to perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to him, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, they thought Moses was the one who was praying and getting God to do stuff. Jesus is like, no, that was me. <laughs> Moses had nothing to do with it. I did it because I loved you. It wasn't about Moses being so close to me that he got special permission to ask me for stuff and then I gave it to him that I didn't want him to have. That's not what this is about. And then he goes on, look at this, and he says... For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They then, then they said, sir, give us this bread always, like the manna. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Let me ask you, do you believe? Have you seen the Lord? Do you trust him? Are you willing to hear him say, what can I do for you? And you're willing to ask, and even if it takes a while, you'll stay faithful. You'll continue to thank him. Like, are you willing to, to allow yourself to be these people and to be in these messes? They lived in a terrible nation with Elijah. They stayed there. They, this woman was content. The, the other woman lost a husband who was faithful, and in their faithfulness, they were, they were in a mess because they were faithful. Like all these circumstances, and God comes through time and time again, and, and, it, 
And yet, by all means, God's saying, I will always come through because there's an eternity where I will be your bread forever. Death is coming, starvation, things are coming. They're coming at some point in your life. And I'm telling you, I'm the one that you can look to. And I see you. I see some little widow. I see a bunch of boys calling my prophet Baldy. I see all these different things. I see them. I'm, it's not like I don't, I see it. But do you believe that I'm the one that you need to come to? Are you going to keep chasing the next relationship? Chasing the next this, that? Or are you going to come to me and then allow yourself to come to my people and serve? And, and that's the real question for us. It's the question we've got to wrestle with. And the answer that's so great is that God looks at us and says, I see you. What can I do for you? And we can come to him and not be disappointed and trust him and walk simply with him while he gives us the answer, yes, no, or wait. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, to be among your people. Thank you that we get the opportunity to to make you known to others. Lord, thank you that Elisha was going around telling the truth about who you were. Thank you that we get to do the same. Father, we give you praise and glory for your name. We thank you like David thanked you. We, we thank you like Jesus gave thanks. Lord, help us to, to be bold enough to come before you and say, what do you want me to do for you? And Lord, help us to be okay with your answers of yes, no, or wait. And Lord, for those who don't know you in this room, I pray that they would not be like the crowds when you came and that they're looking for you to do something, but they see that if they have you, then they can trust you with whatever you want them to do. And so Lord, I pray that if anyone here doesn't know you, today would be the day that they would surrender. They would quit trying to fill their belly and fill their life with all they want and they will finally say, I just want the bread that is Jesus. I want to feed on him as my life because if we do that, then we'll have the Holy Spirit pouring jars of oil in. We'll, we'll see you work in ways that we'll have stories through our lifetime like these to tell people because of your faithfulness. And so, Lord, we thank you. And, Lord, I pray that you would do for our church, that you would use those in this room to make you known to one another and to make you known to the world, and that we would be bold like Elisha was, bold like you were when you walked the earth to tell people their desperate need for you. Thank you in your name. Amen.